0: Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston.
1: And I'm Brian Latendry. And today we are talking about the triple platinum 1984 debut album from Rat, Out of the Cellar.
0: You had to get that triple platinum in there, didn't you? Oh, we're going to talk platinum (laughs) today. Don't you worry. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many listeners out there right now who are punching the air uh, with excitement because, well we know we have listeners who want us to cover more of this type of music but also there are some out there who have very specifically wanted us to cover rat and have been quite vocal about it
1: yeah i mean which is wild and we'll get into it when we talk about the band but for me like rat um was ever present during you know my formative years but like I was more into their singles than actual full albums. So I'm really excited to dive into this one today. But yes, the long awaited, you know, hair metal nods that people have been clamoring for for years, and some people have been uh, crossing their fingers would never happen, is finally happening. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Well, and uh, not to give anything away before we start talking about that album, but I, I will say, uh, I will remind people that I had never before knowingly heard a track by rat i had literally like if i had it was somewhere in the background and i didn't know it was them i had never knowingly heard any music by them whatsoever uh so it's been a journey
1: <laughs> oh i can't wait we're going to go on this journey together
0: <laughs> before we do uh let's just quickly get a few things out of the way first of all we should apologize for having taken quite a bit of a break um since the last episode, but, you know, life gets in the way and all that. Brian and I have both been rammed with work and life and and all that sort of thing. Um, Do have some good things to say, however, uh, which are that since the last episode, Resident Evil Village, which I wrote, has won a bunch of awards.
1: Holy crap, dude, so many awards. Including
0: a couple of Game of the Year uh, awards, and most recently, Maggie Robertson, who played Lady Dimitrescu's character, and I won... Jointly won a DICE award for outstanding achievement in character, which is, you know, pretty big deal. So uh, that's been pretty awesome. And you, Brian Letendry, were listed as, and correct me if I get this, the details oh, no. wrong, but it, it was like the 50 most influential people in education okay. technology.
1: So this is so wild, dude, because it happened. I can tell this story now because I've actually started a new job since then. But, um, on my last day of work at my previous job, I noticed that I had a bunch of notifications on LinkedIn. I'm like, who is tagging me in this big long post? And I went in there and it was, uh, EdTech Digest had put together their yearly um, like top 100 in ed tech. It's like a, these are the 100 influencers in uh, ed tech. And they named me as one, which, I mean, you know, uh, Anthony, just from everything that you've done in writing and, and uh, you know, games and everything else that so much of that stuff is like pay to play.
0: True. Yeah. Where
1: you're, you're sort of, uh, you know, paying to get sponsored on a list or something like that. This was not one of those situations. So I had no idea that this was, Something that was even on the radar for them, like why would they ever pick me for this kind of thing? But yes, I have worked in ed tech for the past four and a half years, and uh, just doing podcasts and doing a lot of blogging, creating a lot of content and stuff like that with our, you know, subject matter experts at the place that I was working and stuff. And so, yeah, I was named one of their top 100, and it was so funny because I saw that and I was like, well, that's a nice way to wrap up my uh, current job before I head on to my next challenge. (laughs) And uh, I showed it to my wife, and she's like, oh, you have to call your mom she's going to absolutely love that. Yeah. And I was like, why? Like, so, so for me, it was like uh, my immediate sort of, um, you know, nerdy reaction is like, I don't deserve that. I don't know why they named me on that. Like, why would they be, you know, talking about me for anything like that? And so she's like, no, call your mother. And it, my mother was very excited about that. So of that course. was, uh, that was a very nice thing. Yeah. A uh, totally unexpected and, um, wild, but so yes,
0: wild is, is the word, but I mean, yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm so proud of you. Um, thank you but but yeah call your mother absolutely do you know uh i'm I'm not sure if i've ever told you this before the my very first the very first pro writing i ever did was for a role-playing game magazine here in the uk called arcane and the first article i ever sold which basically was like you know the first time that i was ever paid for writing something the first person i called was my mom to uh just to just to tell her and to you know make her proud
1: (laughs) Well, you know, whats it, you make a great point about that of like, absolutely call your mom. And I think what I struggle with, and it, it, I really had to change my perspective on it is that thing of like immediately deflecting compliments when they come your way, when sure. someone's like, oh, you yeah. did a great job. And you're, and, and you're like, no, it wasn't me. It was the whole team. It was all that stuff. And it, it, I forget where I read it or who said it or whatever, but it was this idea of like, when you do that, you're not valuing the person's compliment to you. Uh,
0: it and might like, have been like me. You're not accepting. It may, it may have been me who told you that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well it probably you know it probably was you in your infinite wisdom uh <laughs> telling me that, but that's like I don't enough like let compliments land. I just immediately want to put that on someone else or deflect that or whatever and it really does um In a lot of cases, like take away the opportunity for someone to just say a nice thing about you or to, you know, give you a compliment or to recognize your work, which in on the flip side of that, like. I'm all about that with like people I manage and coworkers and stuff like sure. that. And so it's a whole practice what you preach thing about like, you know, you want people around you to feel valued. But then when someone tells you that you're valued, you're like, oh no, not me. You know, <laughs> it's like that whole. Well, uh,
2: well,
0: the reason that I think it may have been me is because I got it from an anecdote by Stephen Fry. Uh, and it's one that I've, you know, used to sort of pass on to people since where, yeah, he was just in the street. I think he was getting out of a cab or something and somebody paid him a compliment, said like, oh, you know, I love your work. Or I think they praised a particular, maybe a play that he'd been in or something. And he did the same thing, deflected and was like, oh no, I was terrible. And this person actually took him to task for it and said like, don't do that. You're effectively saying that I've got bad taste. When you right. do that, you're saying, like, no, I'm wrong, and, you know, I'm ai a sort of, I can't judge what's good. Um, you know, you're actually insulting the person, not consciously, but, you know, uh, who's paying you the compliment. And that really stuck with me. And so, yeah, I've I, I preached that myself ever since.
1: Yeah. It's great advice. Like let, let people compliment you. (laughs) Like even if it makes you uncomfortable, just just like be gracious, say thank
0: you very much. Let it
1: land. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, anyway, (laughs) enough life philosophy, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, as I say, that's why we've been uh, off the air for a while. So, uh, sorry about that, but we are back and yes, we're back with an album that people have been clamoring for. Um, uh, we have some new patrons since the last episode. We seem to, we seem to sometimes get more patrons when we don't put episodes out. I'm not sure how, <laughs> yeah. maybe
1: it's like, they're, you know, they're trying to light a spark of like, Hey guys, <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know how come that on works, now.
1: but let's uh, try to jumpstart it.
0: Yeah. So Craig Wilson, Jonathan Westhoff and David Barty. Thank you all for becoming patrons and joining the community. Um, welcome. Uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, one other thing which we mentioned on the Facebook page, but I want to mention it here as well for people who aren't on Facebook or don't take part in the group uh there is an indian band called bloody wood uh who make what well they used to call it bhangra metal now they call it indian folk metal because i think that's probably a little more palatable for people in the west uh their debut album rakshak is out now on Bandcamp and available to stream on places like spotify and what have you and it is heavy as hell like they use some traditional indian instruments alongside you know, the guitars and drums and what have you. Uh, They have a Linkin Park style arrangement, you know, with one growler and one rapper. Um, And it's fucking great. (laughs) It's such a good album. Oh, my goodness. I mean, they have great videos. Look them up on YouTube. Their videos are are amazing as well. But, yeah, like, holy cow, we may well wind up doing this band and maybe this album uh, at some point on the show because it is really good.
1: I need to dig into that, and and um, I also noticed that yesterday, obviously, the new Ghost album came out. We're recording this on a Saturday. The new Ghost album came out uh, yesterday, and people are already talking about it on our page. It was very anticipated for me. Getting prepared for this episode is why I have not dug into the new Ghost album too much, sure. and you know, I've not checked out other things, too, because it's... I don't know if I've talked about this before, but I need to like lock in... To whatever we're focused on and then once we record the episode and talk about it i can sort of reset and then you know really start to absorb something different at the time so yeah i'll be weighing in on on that ghost album and i will check out the album that you just talked about uh after we record this
0: Mm. yeah no i I think you have mentioned that before and i'm kind of similar it makes sense you know in the sort of the days especially leading up to an episode i just put the album on whatever album we're going to talk about on repeat to let it kind of sink in um Although one album I did not need to do that with was the album on our last episode on the bonus track for volume five. Yeah, this is volume six, track one, by the way. Volume six, can you believe it? Um, uh, and that, of course, was the Stormwitch album, Stronger Than Heaven, which I know took a lot of people by surprise, especially as it was think- my choice.
1: <laughs> That's my favorite thing about it is that people were people would just immediately assume that this was a choice by me yeah. and it was a band that I had not heard and an album that I had not heard and we uh, obviously had a great discussion about it. So I will read a few of the comments that were in the discussion on our Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth White's immediate reaction is what is that? And <laughs> that was you to the said cover, I told yeah. you I had <laughs> yeah I told you I had plans for this one. Uh, Todd said a very pleasant surprise indeed. For some reason, I was almost positive the bonus episode was going to be one of the numerous metal movie soundtracks from the mid nineties. Now that is a very good. We
0: have talked about uh, them once or twice. Yes. things like the Judgment Night soundtrack and the Spawn soundtrack that Bill were kind and Ted's
1: of, Bogus Journey, yeah. uh, Last Action Hero. I mean, for bands that I that and it got me thinking actually that. That doesn't really happen in the same way nowadays. It really doesn't. No, no. Because, but and I'm back not in sure the day, why. Like,
0: yeah. even
1: um, what did I just? I was just talking about the singles soundtrack where all the grunge bands were. Oh, it, because scream the the singer from Screaming Trees passed away. Um, oh yeah, and and he they were on the singles soundtrack, which was like a. I mean, that was a landmark grunge soundtrack back in the day and so you think about like some of these bands would put in fact the band that we're talking about today uh rat did a song on the point break soundtrack called nobody rides for free and that was a big deal back in the day for a band to get a song on a soundtrack yeah and a lot of times they were songs that were either going to be a b-side on a single that came off their actual you know studio album or that was the only place that it was available, and so it was kind of awesome when your favorite bands would do a song for a soundtrack, and it wasn't something that they had previously released before, uh, and that was kind of like to hold you over between albums.
0: well, I think that does still happen with like specific songs you know a, a, a particular band will do a specific song for the closing credits or something but what doesn't seem to happen anymore is these compilation yeah albums where several bands you know many bands would contribute songs uh sort of i don't know just along the theme if you like to go with a particular movie and that would be put out as a separate cd from the soundtrack album and that seems very rare now i'm not sure that's happened at all recently but it used to in the, in the 90s for some reason there was this rash of them wasn't there it was really popular
1: Well, and it was like our version of the Spotify playlist nowadays, where you you know you go on (laughs) Spotify and it's like eighties metal, and it just pulls together you know fifty songs from all these different bands and stuff like that. But it was those were places where I would often discover you'd
0: find bands, yeah, yeah, a
1: new band because you'd be like, damn, I haven't heard those. I've heard all these other bands, but I haven't heard those guys. That's interesting. I'm going to go check those guys out. And so yeah, um, we could do. I don't know if it would, if it could go a whole volume, but I can just think of off the top of my head four or five different ones that I <laughs> feel like we would be able to have a great discussion about because they were just great compilations. Oh. So, but, uh, you know, as, uh, we talked about here, probably best for a bonus episode at some point yeah, in time yeah. to, uh, to revisit one of those. Um, let's see what other, uh, comments here. Mike said reminds me slightly of one of the all time greatest albums, Loose and Lethal by Savage. Partly because of the equally raw production that adds a certain charm, although Savage's riffs and songs are far superior.
0: He I actually shared that at all? Yeah. Uh,
1: in this uh, thread, he actually shared a couple of uh, Savage songs. So if you want to go check those out, uh, Stewart said, "PSA: First impression, the music's better than the cover," which I find <laughs> hard to believe. I think that cover is amazing, <laughs> yeah. but. Um, yeah. Uh and of course, Phil said Anthony just blew my mind with this pick. He said, one, I would have bet dollars to donut this was a Brian's pick. Uh two, I've never even heard of this band. Three, I love it. It's pure 80s metal gold. Like Brian, this is an album that, that I should have been enjoying for decades. And then four, Anthony picked this album. Like he's just he was just completely uh, <laughs> you know, he said, Is it allowed to have an album for of the year that's from 1986? He said, I love this so much. I, I would have guessed this was an 81 to 83 release, as it has that early maiden pre Dickinson vibe to me. And I definitely hear Halloween influences. I'm not even listening to the episode yet. I'm six songs into this (laughs) disc and I'm going to most likely spin it again before I could even listen to the episode. Uh, let's see. Craig said when I heard iron maiden slash hair metal, I knew this wasn't for me, but listening to you two talk for 50 minutes before the music was worth it. So yeah, we try to Fair give enough. you that even if you don't you know <laughs> enjoy the the actual music. Todd said I enjoyed this album and the episode immensely. I have a new favorite new wave of GHM
0: band. German heavy metal.
1: German heavy metal band. Uh with all due respect to Anthony, I don't see how uh Learning that the term Black Romantic is just German for gothic makes calling yourselves the masters of Black Romantic any any less pretentious. I can't think of many things more hilariously pretentious than calling yourself (laughs) the masters of goth at a time when Susie and the Banshees, the Cure, and Sisters of Mercy are actively producing music.
0: Um, That's true.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's see. Uh... Stewart said, I figure they must have listened to some Rainbow as well as Maiden and Judas Priest. They, of course, have a track called Sensitive to Light on Long Live Rock and Roll and Rainbow Were Big in Germany. On the album as a whole, I'd listen to it again but that could be because it evokes a time when I was young and my musical tastes were forming. In some ways it reminds me of a relatively obscure album called Samurai by a relatively obscure band called Grand Prix, not least because I have no idea which of my school friends taped it for me. <laughs> <laughs> taped it for me. I mean, that, that, there you go right yeah, there. That, absolutely. that brings us both back to that day. Oh, well, uh, I, and said, that
0: I should say that's the other thing with the Stormwitch album is that I absolutely put it on tape to listen to it on my Walkman. Uh, as I was, you know, when I was, younger and sort of wandering around town or whatever uh it was definitely in rotation on my uh because you know how it was you used to have your pockets filled with three or four sure. cassettes and you'd you'd swap around which ones you took on uh, you know long journeys and yeah it was absolutely in the rotation
1: i want to know who had a job In their teenage years, because I feel like this was so formative for me, but I had uh, two jobs in my teenage years. My first job was as a custodian at a hockey rink, and my second job was at a grocery store where I would often get sent out to the parking lot to collect all the carriages um, after people sort of left them all over the place in the parking lot. And in both of those situations, I was able to take my Walkman with me and listen to music for hours at a time while I was working. And I feel like that was so instrumental in me just making music like the f- woven into the fabric of everything I did, because I would spend a good portion of my days at work listening to music for hours on end. And I just wonder how many people who really, you know, super got into music, had those opportunities where they were just listening to music more And for longer periods of time on a regular basis than maybe other people. And that's why they became like so, you know, in love with it. But both of my early jobs were I could listen to music all the time.
0: I I would be very interested to see, yeah, people, you know, in response to this on Facebook or Patreon, I'd love to hear those sorts of stories. I actually didn't because like my first jobs... Uh, when I was a teenager, we're working in bars. Um, so obviously you can't really, you know, stick your headphones on there. Um, but when I got into, when I became a designer and started working in agencies, you know, that's the sort of place where you can just have a stereo playing in the yeah. in the studio. So we used to do that a lot. But also, honestly, when I was a teenager, even before I got into sort of the work market, I just had my walk. Whenever I left the house, I was wearing my Walkman. And I used to walk... Pretty much everywhere. I'd either walk or catch the bus to visit friends all the time. And my school was like, you know, a 40 minute walk from my house and stuff. So I just have my headphones on, my Walkman on constantly. When, if I left the house, I had my Walkman with me. So yeah, that's when I was catching up and listening to all that music was just while walking or catching the bus to go and see friends.
1: For me, it was walking and riding my bike everywhere because it was the same. Like everywhere we went, we would we were riding. I was riding my bike across town. I was riding my bike, and it was uh, headphones in my ears, twenty four seven. And to this day, that is still how I live. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I, you know, I feel like disproportionately to many, uh, you know, adults my age, I am listening to music on a regular basis. Well, like, and if it's not music, it's podcasts. Like I am constantly listening to audio in headphones. And I have been doing that since I was whatever, 11, 12, 13 years old.
0: And that's the other thing is that when I wasn't out of the house listening to music on my Walkman, I was in my bedroom listening to music on my stereo, you know, and now when I'm working, I'm listening to music on my computer and stuff. So, yeah, I'm the same. I've always got, I'm not one of those guys who can have the TV on uh, in the background because I find that really distracting, but I will always if i'm just sitting in silence reading or something i will put music on uh the stereo to listen to because yeah i just i always have
1: uh back to the comments here dave said thank you for giving us what is basically a to halloween special <laughs> i had never <laughs> yeah. heard of stormwitch and thought the discussion of stronger than heaven was a perfect seasonal treat uh they felt like the audio equivalent of an 80s horror film that is so on the nose but so heartfelt that it's a delight to experience that uh, yeah. The kind that might be shown on the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. He said, also, uh, love that Anthony and his friends couldn't remember how they came across the album. It felt like the setup to a great horror comic. <laughs> yeah, it's just the, the album that appears in your collection. And, you know, uh, reminds me of the movie Trick or Treat, right? Which was uh, the the last recording of Sammy Kerr. Did you ever see that movie I with uh, Gene Simmons it, no. and Ozzy Osbourne? Really? No. It has Skippy from Family Ties in it? Holy crap, that's a great <laughs> That is, and talk about uh, movie soundtracks. Fastway did the soundtrack to that entire movie, um, oh, which was man. really, really great. So uh, let's see what else. And then uh, Tordeth said, did Anthony just say that thrash is basically sped up new wave of British heavy metal? He said, those are brave words, and I'm upset I agree.
0: <laughs> it's true, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't meant as an insult. It's just, you know. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, overall, I mean, just scrolling through the right, re- there's a lot of great comments here. Uh, I'll, I, and I'll read one last one before we wrap up here, but go check out this conversation on our Facebook page. Like, I would say this was, uh, if I had to sum up the reaction to that episode, it was pleasantly surprised and blown away that this recommendation came from you.
0: Yeah, that does, it did, did seem to be the consensus for sure which you know it's good i like to i contain multitudes
1: (laughs) yes and i'll leave you with jd's comment who says i am ashamed today this is a podcast i usually listen to on the day it drops or within a week at least and it has taken me this long to get the episode that not only features what is surely the best album of the year, but also a very indulgent reading of my long-ass comment. So allow <laughs> me to be brief. This has everything. A mystery album from Antony Shelf, Germans trying to be Iron Maiden and doing a pretty good job of it, a campy horror aesthetic, and a truly rocking sound. This is awesome. I've already listened to half of Storm Witch's catalog, and will continue to go through it, because this is really like an escape from some alternative universe that I had no knowledge of before now. Let me tell you, this has been a pretty challenging week in this episode. As a whole was like the sun emerging from the storm clouds, a black romantic sun, oh. of course.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Good stuff there. Awesome conversations. Uh, I love our community on Facebook. It is I, I have probably said this a thousand times. It is the only reason that I go to Facebook nowadays, is because of this community. And there's always such great discussion off of every episode that we do. So uh thank you all for Jumping on there and just having great conversations,
0: and not just jumping off of the episodes, but you know, people oh, posting yeah, new music they've found, new albums that are coming out, news, and just general chatter, asking questions about you know, how did you first discover a certain band, or what was your favorite band in high school? This thing, that sort of thing. It's great. It is. It's a great lively community, and yeah, I, it's not the only reason I go to Facebook, but it is certainly one of. Uh, you know, the main reasons that I even still have a Facebook account. Um, yep.
1: And this many years in, the fact that that it still continues to be a welcoming and yes. friendly and supportive and positive place is, it really warms my heart. Like it, it proves that Facebook doesn't have to just be a cesspool of uh, <laughs> of toxicity all the time. Like it is, uh, it is an island in a sea of chaos.
0: It really is. I mean, part of that is because we do clamp down pretty hard on people who try and come in and, and not be like that. But still, it's you know, true. but at the same time, we still we don't have to do that very often because very yeah, it just doesn't seem to attract those sorts of people, which is lovely. Um, I should read out some URLs, shouldn't I? Yeah, if you want to join the conversation at the Facebook group, it is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and of course, while you're around, while you're clicking around on the internet, go to patreon.com slash thrashed it out to uh become a patron and support this show there you go that was very professional wasn't
1: it It, i mean i literally thought i was in the middle of an ad roll (laughs) we're back we're live The, the light just went back on uh time to switch gears then as we jump into today's discussion indeed now you said at the top of the show but just to to reiterate Sounds like you had very little knowledge. I mean, you knew who Rat was. You had heard the name of Rat as a group, but as far as their music, like totally unfamiliar.
0: Uh, Well, not just the music. I mean, I I knew that they were one of the original hair metal bands, and that's literally as far as my knowledge went. That's all that I knew about them. I knew nothing else. Um, So yeah, as I say, I had never knowingly heard one of their songs. If you'd asked me to name a Rat song, I couldn't have. You know, which I could at least have done with Motley Crue, uh, but I couldn't even do sure. that. With You know, even if I didn't know the songs, I could at least name a couple. But with Rat, I couldn't have even named one. Uh, so this was, and I remember you being shocked, not surprisingly, <laughs> when I told you that. Uh, so, yeah, this has been a real kind of, because this came out, I think, this is actually came out after Shout at the Devil, I think I saw. Which surprised me, because the way people talk about Rat is as if they predate Motley Crue, and if they, as if they were, you know, sort of the very first on the scene. So it was a bit of a surprise to find out that they were contemporary, but not actually predating Motley Crue.
1: Well, and kind of overshadowed too by, well, so let's talk about the history there because the, the early incarnations of rat, and some of this is going to be from Wikipedia and some of it is from articles that I also um, sort of found and, and looked back on, but they kind of started in around 1977, originally in the San Diego area. And um, from what I read, it was that Stephen Piercy, the singer, and Robin Crosby, the guitar player, were in a couple of different bands, and they kind of moved to L.A. around the same time because the scene in San Diego wasn't as uh, open to the music that they were making, and L.A. was the place where all of these bands were sort of getting signed and stuff like that. And so they moved to um, they moved to L.A. and then eventually started playing in the same band together, and and Stephen Piercy and Robin Crosby... Are kind of the foundation of RAT. RAT is interesting for a number of different reasons. Number one is they had over the years some very interesting people come in and out of the band. They had a lot of lineup changes. The lineup we're going to talk about today is what is um, thought of and for good reason as the classic RAT lineup, which is Stephen Piercy on vocals, Robin Crosby on guitar, Warren D. Martini on guitar. Juan Crozier on bass, and Bobby Blotzer on drums. That's sort of the, the classic, you know, legendary Rat lineup. But they had a lot of people come in and out of that band both before and after this sort of core set of years that they really um, made a lot of noise in the 80s. And so uh, notable names. Jakey e. Lee was in an earlier version of Rat called Mickey Rat, which was a Stephen Piercy thing before it actually became Rat. Mark Torian uh, from Bullet Boys. Michael Shanker uh carlos cavazzo from quiet riot is now i still believe the guitar player and Ra- i might be wrong about that and john carabi who a lot of people know who was on uh came in and replaced vince neal on an album for motley Crue. and so a uh, lot of people in and out of this band over the years but this particular lineup was the core lineup for all of the albums that they're most well known for and you mentioned motley Crue. motley Crue, obviously owned the 80s in terms of like album sales like when you look at what motley Crue did over that decade of the 80s it is uh it's unbelievable but rat i mean they freaking they killed it dude well, as like, you said at uh, the
0: start triple platinum
1: well and before we even talk about that you might remember a little um compilation album called metal massacre
0: oh that does uh, ring about actually yeah
1: came out in 1982, and most people know it because Metallica was on that compilation, uh, their hit-the-light yeah. song, and the original pressing was one that Dave Mustaine played on as well, and I think Ron McGovern, uh played on that one, but... A lot of people know Metal Massacre as part of Metallica's history of like being on that compilation. And that was started in 1981. It was uh Brian Slagle, who founded Metal Blade Records, put out compilations of unsigned bands. And so it came out for a bunch of years. I want to say the last one. Where do they say here? It looks like 19... uh 95 wow. was the last regular release and then 2006 they did like another one after that but for for the 80s this was a very common like um release that came out like almost every year and so the first metal massacre that metallica appeared on the first pressing of the first edition of metal massacre rat was on uh you also had uh here's the bands that were on that uh steeler bitch malice avatar Sirith ungle Demon Flight, Pandemonium, Metallica, and Rat.
0: Wow. That's, and so- Sirith rings a bell, but I'm not sure if that's- If if I'm I'm just getting confused and like it sounds familiar just because I know the name from Tolkien or whether I actually know the band.
1: (laughs) Well, and when you start going into like the 82 version had Armored Saint on it, had Overkill on it, had Trauma on it. And so you like with each year, you start to see some of the names that really started to appear on these things. uh, Slayer was on Metal Massacre 3 in 1983. But the fact that Rat was on the original Metal Massacre is wild. And it kind of speaks to the fact that they were they were in this scene when all of these other bands were just starting to come together as well. And so the thing about that LA music scene, in a lot of ways, is that you had bands that predated other ones but didn't get their record deal until you know, uh, a band that was younger than them ended up getting a record deal. And so yeah. the perception was that they followed this band and they were influenced by this band or something like that. But, but for a lot of it, it was just like, there was a lot of bands that were in that area at the same time. And when, and how they got signed, just kind of depend on dependent on the different circumstances. It's why we have like a big four instead of a big five or a big six, right? Yeah. It's why Exodus wasn't part of the big four and stuff like that. And well,
0: so, well, the same um, thing happened with grunge. Remember? You know, like when the grunge explosion happened, there were all these bands like Soundgarden who sort of, you know, were signed after some of the other bands but had been around for years beforehand. Um, so, yeah, similar sort of thing. It's, I think that's inevitable with scenes, isn't it? I think I, I was just surprised not... Because uh, I had read that they, you know, had been around a lot since the 70s. And you can tell, incidentally. That's one of the things I will say about this is you can... Much like the Twisted Sister album you can tell that these guys have spent years playing in shitty nightclubs to crowds of like you know three people and a dog um you know and really working their way up before becoming sort of so-called overnight sensations i think that really comes through in the musicianship 100%. on this record um but what like I say i was talking more about the fact that the record was released after motley crew because i just i'd always had the impression from the mainstream point of view that you know, people became aware of Rat first, and then Motley Crue. Right. But clearly, you know, it, it was clearly the other way around, and I was mistaken
1: in terms of the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. for sure, because for for Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love, nineteen eighty one, Shout at the Devil, nineteen eighty three. For Rat, their debut album comes out in nineteen eighty four, but they were on that early Metal Massacre collections. So they were obviously around and had been around since the they were in the you know, scene in like, yeah, yeah. since the seventies. Yep, and then um, their EP came out in 1983, and their EP sold over 100,000 copies. So let's just talk about oh, wow. album sales real oh, okay. quick. okay, I didn't know Because we that. talked <laughs> about how Motley Crue kind of ruled the world at the time. So obviously getting on the Metal Massacre compilation, a, a big deal. It was the first one, so it wasn't the institution that it later became. But still, you know, uh, good to get on that. Their EP comes out in 1983, sells over 100,000 copies.
0: That's amazing. Out of yeah. the
1: cellar, their debut album, Triple Platinum. This was nice. So they have Metal Massacre 1982, their EP 1983, Out of the Cellar, the album that we're going to talk about today, 1984, Invasion of Your Privacy 1985, that goes double platinum. Uh, Dancing Under- Undercover 1986, that goes platinum. Reach for the Sky 1988, that goes platinum. Detonator 1990, that goes gold. So
0: that's not a bad just- run, is it? Wow. <laughs> no.
1: Triple platinum, double platinum, 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 platinum gold. Between 1984 and 1990. So it's hard to me. It's almost like um, when you talk about Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley, right? Like Charles Barkley had the unfortunate circumstances of having an entire basketball career during the same time that Michael Jordan did. Yeah, yeah. Right? As a result, he retires with no championships. My favorite player of all time. Rat is one of those bands where I wouldn't say they're overlooked because clearly, even people not familiar with their music know who they were or have heard their name in that particular scene. But when you've got a Motley crew, that is, I mean, we're t- right, we just where, went over Who these, are going you, like you five know,
0: times platinum with every album. A hundred percent.
1: Dude, it's like, come on. Like Dr. Feelgood, I think, might have been 1989, 1990, and, you know, was like six times platinum or something like that. I'm probably getting that wrong. But, um, well, let's just look. 1989, Dr. Feelgood goes... Six times platinum.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Right. And then you've got Rat, who 1990 does Detonator, which goes gold, which is great. Which especially is still great. at a time yeah. where the music scene is changing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you've got Molly Crew going six times platinum. So it was like
0: overshadowed for Rat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just like, you know, and granted, they are not the only two bands in that scene, and the scene blew up, especially, I would say, from like 82 through 88, right, it was huge for hair metal and so many bands coming out. But that that to me is one of the things that makes it, for, for me personally, like the most fascinating decade of music, because when the people came in, defined their careers, even for bands that have been around for a long time but didn't get their record deal till late, because when things started to change with grunge... Um, you know, for some bands like Rat, it was the, kind of the changing of the times, but they had had a good run in the '80s. For other bands that maybe didn't get their first album deal until '88, they were screwed. By yeah. the time their sophomore album comes out, they're screwed. Yeah, and so um, you know, bands that have had they just gotten signed three or four years earlier. Would have completely changed the trajectory of their careers. And so, um, maybe some bands that we'll talk about in the future, but hey, that's a, that's a conversation <laughs> for, a, for another day there. So yeah. So, um, Rat clearly in the scene. They were actually the house band for 10 months at the whiskey a go go, wow. which is obviously a famous okay. place. So the house band being the band that opens up for everybody yeah, else. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of play whenever there's a show there and stuff like that. And it was there that their manager, Marshall Burl, um, basically signed them and supported their EP from from what I've read and, and stuff like that. And so it was them kind of getting gigs in that area where there were people looking for new music and to, looking for bands to sign that resulted in that. And um, I believe The Doors were a house band for the Whiskey Go-Go at one point in time. Like, that's, oh, a, wow, yeah. that, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, there, there's a lot of careers that were um, but it, positively impacted by playing the Whiskey uh
0: but it again speaks to what I was saying about you know them being much like when we talked about Twisted Sister. You know those bands who have had yes. that years. Oh, and the Beatles. You can go all the way back to the Beatles yep. and you know their stint in Germany and what have you. They were playing what was it, three shows a day, for like you know doing thirty minute sets three times a day in Germany uh, in front of people who could not have cared any less <laughs> about the band and that you know it, it's been shown you can see it you can it's demonstrated uh you know that just gives you that kind of that tightness and that effortlessness of musicianship um that you just can't get any other way it's the whole ten thousand hours thing now I and mean, imagine it is a hundred now imagine that. doing those ten thousand hours in front of a crowd who actively don't want to you to be doing it <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep. that you're know, a hostile crowd. That's like, I mean, maybe not so much for the crowd at the whiskey or something. But yeah, it's uh it's a hell of a sort of trial by fire. And I think, yeah, like I say, it shows in what those bands and those musicians then go on to to do.
1: Absolutely. And um I mentioned Marshall Burl, who was their manager. He is the nephew of Milton Burrell, who you might remember uh from being a comedian, being on TV all the time back in the day. And he actually appeared in the, uh, in two videos off of this album, uh, round and round and back for more. Um, which was a big deal back in the day, like seeing him appear in these videos. You're like, how in the world did they get him? Why is he (laughs) in these videos? Well, because he was the uncle of the manager of the band. (laughs) Um, and that was kind of a, a running joke with them. And so, yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, they it's probably scene- good that
0: they had a pr- at least one professional performer in those videos because the band certainly were not fulfilling that role. That actually did. That's one thing that I find really weird. I watched the video for Round and Round. I mean, it is not a great video. It's a very typical sort of, you know, early 80s video. Yeah, totally. But more than anything, I was like, the band looks so uncomfortable. And for a band who have been on stage performing for years... I just couldn't get out, like, they look really uncomfortable and unnatural hit- uh, performers. It's so bizarre.
1: You know what's funny about that is I feel like in the interview clips and things that I've seen as well, they were also not shy, but like, uh, like certainly Robin Crosby, I at like the times that I've seen him interviewed seemed like really uh, almost like introverted, which is wild because Robin Crosby, <laughs> um, uh, who, who passed away from a, a heroin overdose in uh, 2002 and, and is kind of a tragic story. I mean, like there's a lot of elements of Rat's story that are kind of the classic story of an '80s band of like the
0: excess, of hitting them. it yeah. big.
1: Then the band starts to slowly implode over time where, you know, egos get in the way, lots of problems, things like that. You know, the, the sound is changing. They're not making as good a music as they used to make. And then they kind of fall apart. And like, if you've seen clips of Stephen Piercy um, performing live, like nowadays, he's, he's struggling much the, uh, the way, I don't know that he's struggling as bad as Vince Neal is struggling to, to sort of perform live, but Stephen Piercy was never like this. Amazingly dynamic singer, but he was the perfect singer for this band. And especially in the early years, like I I feel like this to me is probably their most complete album because for me, Rat is one of those bands that I would put their singles and their, you know, their singles that they released off of their major studio albums up against anybody's catalog of singles. Rat was one of those bands that had a few great videos and a few awesome. Radio tunes off of every single album that they put it out, and, and and when you would hear them, you'd be like, "Oh, that's Rat." Like they would, they didn't sound like other bands between Stephen Piercy's vocals and Warren D. Martini, and just the riffs, right? Like a, in, in that way, they're similar to uh, Dokken for me. Of like, you hear a Dokken song, and you're like, "Damn, that is that's Dackin. That's the George Lynch sound. That's the and Rat has a, a certain tone and sound to them that I feel like." uh is very recognizable but they were like you saw how many albums they put out over the i mean they were putting out pretty much an album a year i mean there's one year where they uh you know in the later 80s they went 86 to 88 and 88 to 90 but it was like 83 ep 84 out of the cellar 85 invasion of your privacy 86 dancing undercover 88 reach for the Sky. so it was like you always had a video from rat You know, Especially because a lot of those videos are coming out after the album's already out and over the next year or two and stuff like that. And so Rat, to me, was one of those bands during the MTV, that early MTV era, which they came along right in time for. They were ever-present. And so you didn't watch a block of videos on MTV without getting a Rat video. And so they were there from the beginning and just felt like ever-present to me. Over that time. And then by the time that detonator hit in 1990, you know, and then things really started to fall apart for them. Like I was, you know, I graduated high school in 92. And so like, but they were there during those formative years for me and they were kind of ever present. So their singles I would put up against everyone, but I felt like their albums were much more of a mixed bag, like, overall. But that, that's mean, true of,
0: like, loads of bands that's in the of 80s. true so many bands, right, As, yeah, Well, yeah. especially in the 80s, when filler tracks were, you know, very much a thing. And, yeah, you put your singles on the album, and then you maybe had a couple of great, uh, you know, good songs to, to fill it out, and then you still had two or three slots, and so on go the tracks that are basically only worthy of being B-sides, you know. That just, that happened all the time, especially with bands that had been had very successful singles because they knew they would sell the album anyway because everybody wanted it off the back of the single.
1: And in those days, to the point that you were making earlier about, you know, like bands having done a bunch of uh, playing out and touring and, you know, playing local gigs before they got signed, like usually the first album is the one that has the most complete, you know, lineup of songs because those are the songs you've been Um. playing forever. Right. And you have enough to, to kind of make, an album with. Whereas like the sophomore slump or, you know, subsequent albums, I feel like that's where more and more filler comes in for those albums. When bands tried to recreate, you know, they've been playing yeah. for five, six, seven years together in all of these, you know, so they have all the songs that, that would fill out their set list and then they get that first album out. And then it's like, okay, well, next year you need to release another album. yeah. And it was like, okay, well, okay, we have a good single for that one. And then what the hell else are we going to do for
0: Yeah, you've Um, spent five years writing your first album and now you've got six (laughs) months to write the second.
1: (laughs) A hundred percent. And you see, like, I mean, when you look at, I feel like this is, what happened during the 80s, especially, like, will never be repeated again in terms of the volume and frequency of releases. I mean, you're looking at 83, 84, 85, 86, 88, 90. Nowadays, like, three years is... A reasonable time frame for an album oh yeah no you know bands to take in between used to be
0: the cycle didn't it you'd release an album you would go out on tour to promote it for like seven or eight months and then you'd go back in the studio for three months and release another album the same time the next year absolutely and we were
1: spoiled back in the day because like we got you could just expect that if you had whoever your favorite bands were like they had a new album every year year and a half yep you know, right, two if years there wasn't on the was, not people would go,
0: What's wrong? Why isn't there a new album from such and such a band?
1: <laughs> I think it, to me, it was like Def Leppard was the first one where, like, the, the wait for hysteria felt like it was unnaturally long. And obviously, there it was because of like Rick Allen's. I was going to say, yeah, like they had that, a but, good
0: excuse, to be fair. <laughs> but,
1: but that, like, at the time was so abnormal because you just expected music quicker from bands like you expected the albums to be coming out at, you know, fast and furious yep. during that time. And so, um, so, so yeah, it was like an embarrassment of riches during that time. I was
0: just going to say with regard to like them sounding, you know, unique, I'm not familiar enough with them, obviously to, to sort of say that about the music or the riffs in the same way, but I know where you're coming from. Cause you know, let's say, uh, you know, Pantera, Dimebag Daryl, as soon as you heard a, a Daryl riff, you knew it was them. You knew it was him. So I, I, i can see if you know the music well enough i can see where you're coming from but honestly for me it would have been pierce's voice uh and i mean you said he wasn't the most dynamic singer but he is such a better singer than many of the hair metal bands that i have heard before in the 80s i was actually genuinely surprised and impressed at how good a singer he is he is so much better than Vince Neil. It is not even funny. I like. <laughs> I just. I couldn't get over how like how is a band with this singer less successful than somebody fronted by Vince Neil, who can barely shout his way out of a paper bag? It's just. It blows my mind.
1: I'm glad that you said that because I definitely don't want to come across as um, being reductive toward you know Stephen Piercy's vocals. I th- because again I think they are signature to this band like you as you mentioned like you you hear this and um you hear his vocals and you know who it is to me the dynamic thing was just more of like his his overall range like he he was definitely melodic he definitely i actually really like the way that they use his vocals in the songs and i think they're they do enough different things in their songs that when you listen to them repeated times, you start to notice in a way that a lot of eighties bands, I think I hate to use the term formulaic. I'm sure some would even apply it to, to rat in certain scenarios, but there is a framework for a hair metal, you know, hard rock eighties song. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's, first verse, second verse, solo, you know, sort of thing. And like your main riff, your chorus, that kind of stuff. Like it, it follows a pattern. And what I like about rat, especially on this album is how they play with your expectations and they do some things that are a little bit out of the ordinary that make your ears pay attention a little bit more to what they're doing there. And there's, there's kind of two things that I, I notice about them And, and that's not to say that these things are absent in other bands, but there's kind of two things one is how um robin crosby crosby and uh warren d martini will play the same rhythm but slightly differently or just like out of just like out of sync with one another in in a way that it feels like you are it's doing something like on the left and right side that is just slightly different. Or like one of them will just be playing the straight chords and the other one will throw a couple extra, usually like Warren D Martini will throw in a couple of chugs or, you know, he'll bend something a little bit so that it's just a little bit off from the other in a way that a lot of bands were just kind of locked in and playing the exact same thing all the time Well, it
0: was the it's the judas priest effect wasn't it you know a lot of bands were just doing that the tipton downing kind of we play exactly the same thing at exactly the same time and we're so tight together that it sounds almost like one guitar being doubled but actually it is two of us and that was a selling point for them but well and and a lot of bands just sort of went well that's clearly how you do it then um whereas as you say yeah i did notice that they're you know the guitars are doing different certainly only slightly but nevertheless slightly different things but on most of these tracks
1: it's actually the slightly that i find really satisfying oh, rather than to listen wildly to. different yeah yes like because it is just like you can kind of feel the difference in style a little bit but also like it's it it constantly sort of plays off of one another. And the other thing that I heard, um, I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this podcast have watched, uh, Ben Eller's, uh, guitar breakdowns of like different artists and different bands and different solos. He does a great job of like taking a classic solo and breaking it down in a way that people can play. And he, he has a, a very, um, he pays attention to detail to the point of, like, correcting a lot of, like, shitty tab <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> interpretations of yeah. stuff
1: like that. He does a really good job. But one of the things that in, he, he loves um, Rat, in has talked about, and I forget what video it was in, but he basically talked about, like, even when they're double tracking the guitar. He may play it differently. Like, like let's say Warren D. Martini, it's a double track of his guitar. He might play it differently on the left side than the right side, just, just slightly. So even when it is supposed to be the exact same thing, it's not the exact same thing. Well, and so...
0: But that's good, because... So it's, it's awesome. Well, but it's how it's how vocalists double track vocals. When a vocalist is double tracking their performance, they're not... Or you know, a good vocalist anyway isn't literally doing it the same way both times. They will vary. Right. It. They'll bring the pitch down, or they will you know change a couple of the intonations, or even just literally change the melody so that there's counterpoint in there and stuff. That's that's good. That's what you should do because that makes it more interesting.
1: A hundred percent. And what it lends to, I think, to the sound of this band on their debut album. And again, they had a very successful EP, so it's not like.
0: They right, wouldn't this, have a this lot wasn't of the first time they were in the studio album. yeah, yeah
1: but that those sort of little kind of um you know things about their approach leads to this kind of swagger to their overall sound that feels. Um, first of all, it really leans into that kind of like sleaze rock, like there's there's kind of a sleazy um, feel to it, which I think helps contribute to sort of the overall like hair metal, sleaze metal, glam metal sort of uh, sound. I think they have that element to just their overall sound, but also like there is this freedom to the way that they're playing off of one another that feels n- not I- improvised, but it just lends this kind of like raw swagger to it that I really appreciated more and more the more that I kind of dug into and listened to this album. So it's a it's an album that for me is very fun to go back and listen to because I'm like, oh, in the second verse here, he does this little thing and that that's cool. Like that's interesting in this, you know, thing. Or like here they're, you know, just playing the straight chords, but then you know, um, 30 seconds from now they're playing the chords, but stringing them together with notes in between and stuff like that. Like it's, it's just the way that they kind of ebb and flow through the songs that I, I think lends a uniqueness to their sound, especially in this, um, sort of thing. I think Guns and Roses was known for that too. Yeah, You know, just that kind of, um, well, It's
0: making it feel just, loose and this is, yes, it's, yes. it's the irony is that you actually have to be really good and tight to be able to make something sound loose without it going off the rails,
1: and what's interesting about this band is like uh you know Stephen Piercy has talked about how sort of Robin Crosby was like the foundation you know of this band, and then they bring in Warren D Martini, who is this absolute like virtuoso shredder, you know when you hear these sort of um you know, you, you would call them noodling uh, when you hear when you hear those sort of noodling solos like that's Warren Martini. And when you hear the more um almost like bluesy, mm-hmm. you know, type of solos, that's your and Crosby there. And uh, and I'll try to call them out where I know that, you know, the differences in the in the solos are here. But. Overall, like the, the level of complexity that, uh, you know, intricacy that De Martini is operating at is different than where they're very different guitar players. And I think what happened over time was that even though early on in the, in the days of the band, like Robin Crosby knew that they needed to showcase Warren De Martini because he was this, um, you know, he was that guitar here. He it was, was the, every band of that time. The had to they have. Hand, yeah. The, the guitar hero. And he was that right. And he knew that Robin Crosby knew that even though he was kind of, um, you know, him and Piercy were kind of that foundation, right? He knew that they needed to, to showcase Martini. But I think over time he just continued to get more kind of overshadowed by, because that, the, the way that the music scene was that day is you did elevate the guitar hero. Like every band had one and that person became you know the guitar player that you knew from that band and stuff like that and uh, and so yeah it kind of makes robin crosby's story even a little bit more tragic right as he's you know the guy that's so fundamental to the to the start of this and then over time you know maybe it feels a, uh, like he's being a little bit overshadowed of that or, or or that his contribution isn't as recognized or whatever but not to say that he was um from what I've read, I haven't read stories where like he was the egotistical guy and he was a, but I just get the sense that that was kind of the, the feel, um, you know, as time went on with that band. But, um, yeah, back on Robin Crosby real quick. The, uh, on the EP, you just see, uh, a model's legs with like, I think it's with like rats actually kind of crawling on them. And on the very first album, Out of the Cellar, that we're talking about today, the cover is like someone opening the cellar door and the the light coming out. That is Tawny Katayan, who most people know from the Whitesnake videos, um, back in the day. But, uh, she was dating Ros- Robin Crosby at the time. And so, and I think they were actually dating since high school. And so, she became like very well known in the music scene, you know, at the time, uh, especially when those White Snake videos. I think it was Here I Go Again is the one where she's, you yeah. know, dancing on the the hoods of the cars and stuff like that. She was extremely well known back at that time. But uh, here is on the cover of their EP and their first album, and she also was in the video, I think, for Back for More. And so um, she was
0: the. Yeah you know, sort of 80s metal pinup, essentially. As pretty much every rock and metal fan, you know, either knew who she was or had a poster of her on their wall, frankly, in the 80s. She was, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea about that until I did, I read about that. And like, the idea that Rat was her sort of route in via yeah uh, crosby in, into wild, this right? world of metal and becoming yeah one of the most famous models in the world at that time at least within the sort of music scene was just yeah nuts like hang on what it started with rat really
1: <laughs> i
0: know right and
1: and that's kind of the cool thing is when you go back and look at some of these bands from that era because everything was so woven together and so much of that scene was happening sort of at the same time with all these different bands you start to see like how different guys played in versions of everybody's band and how, you know, there, there there's just so much like shared history yeah. there that it's kind of, uh, fascinating to go back and look, um, to that point that I was making about the sort of foundational thing with, uh, with piercey and Robin, uh, Crosby, there was an interview in 2011 with, uh, I think it was a noise creep where Stephen piercey was saying, um, that before rat formed in the incarnation of the classic lineup, he said, we still had Jakey e. Lee, uh, On guitar, and Robin would come in and jam with us from time to time, once Jake left the band, I brought Robin into the lineup. Together, we laid down the foundation for what everyone knows as the rat sound. Uh, In those early years, Robin was pretty much the main guy, but Warren was progressing so phenomenally that it was hard to ignore. He, uh, he, he said, you see, Robin didn't have an ego about it and was actually brave enough to say, I think we should showcase this kid. Not a lot of guitar players would have done that. Um, That's true. And so he was talking about that in, back in 2011. And so that that rat sound is something that he sort of attributes him and Robin Crosby together to kind of sort of defining. And there's a couple songs on this album that uh, were songs that Robin Crosby did with a previous band of his called, I just forgot the name to it. It is called Mac Meta. And so, um, actually the last two songs on this album are, are songs that he had done earlier versions of with a previous band. And then they became rat songs on this album. And so, yeah, it's one of those things where I think a lot of times when people think about rat, they think about Warren D. Martini and they think about Stephen Piercy. Um, but, Robin Crosby, you know, has a has sort of a tragic ending to his story, but was just like so much of their classic sound and, and who they were. Um, he is like directly responsible for. So, yeah, it was actually um, one of the
0: prime movers. All right. Well, let's let, let's move on. Let's get on to the album then and talk about those we'll do songs. Um, I mean, we, we should give out the stats. So it was 1984, as you've mentioned, there are 10 songs on the album and it's only 37 minutes long, which is. Love it pretty short but uh, as we've said before at the time wasn't that unusual to have an album you know relatively short like this rather than drawing it out unnecessarily
1: totally and i mean there's there's sub three minute uh oh, yeah. This yeah, album, yeah. so yeah <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah there oh, are man. lots of short songs on here <laughs> for sure
1: <laughs> all right well, let- which i like i mean i like the time right i like the time that like this was okay right It was okay to have a three minute rock song like that was those were good they didn't
0: all have to be like five minute uh well i mean you know i love a good 10 minute epic but yes for sure there are also there are plenty of five minute metal songs that really don't need to be five minutes it's true um so let's start with the open uh album opener track one wanted man
1: boy do i feel like this is a really good representation of not only what you're going to get on this album but also of rat period like this is this kind of has everything you would want in a rat song it's got a great riff um they do kind of this like uh rewind reverse sort of drum sound at the beginning of the song as it kind of comes it's almost like you're uh on the analog tape, like you're skipping backwards, right? You're scrubbing backwards in the sound. And then it just kicks off, you know, with the chords and then a great sort of pick slide into the main riff. And that's where you get Stephen Piercy's initial like scream as the song opens. And so I feel like just in that first 10 to 15 seconds of the song, you've got You've got all the main ingredients right there, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is weird listening to this track for the first time in 2022 because it sounds like such a cliche. Like, it's, you know, because clearly they they and, you know, the bands of this scene were so influential at the time that so many other bands decided, oh, that's how you do it, we're going to sound like that. Uh, so when you know that this is one of the first, you know, that them and crew basically set the template for what this sound is going to be, then it's kind of, it's a bit more forgivable. But the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, I have heard like every note of this (laughs) in other songs, you know, like before. Um, but as I say, then you think, oh, but that's because actually all those other songs came after this one. Uh, so it it is, yeah, it's, it's a, It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it set that template, which is kind of, it's wild to hear that in real time, as it were. You know what I mean?
1: Totally. But I think you can also start to pick out here those little uh, elements that like, I think like 30 seconds in, you can kind of hear that almost like not out of sync, but that almost like playing off one another, two different styles of guitar uh sort of thing as they're kind of both playing around the main sort of yeah rhythm there they they do a lot of uh sliding too right of the like um of the chord like one chord into another sort of thing yeah. and there's this thing that they do where um as they're kind of building up to the chorus it almost feels like they're they're either bending up or they're sliding up as like In the way that they are, you know, playing the, they're playing the rhythm. It's it almost feels like it has this little kind of up uh, feel as they build into the chorus and stuff like that. It's hard to describe. This is where my my lack of music theory (laughs) and uh, and not being an actual player myself, like my my vocabulary kind of fails me in that. But there's there might be a bit of string bending going
0: on there. Yeah, yeah, because you can still do that with power chords.
1: It almost feels like a little bit of a like an upslide that they're they're sort of doing where it just it's just this little thing where it feels like it's kind of building where he's saying you're a human target in my eyes and and it's just like as they're built like dun, 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 and yeah. it, it's just weird but anyways um this is a guitar solo in the song that is uh Martini at first and then uh crosby comes in to finish and what i like about the way that crosby plays um i i mean let me be clear De Martini is like my kind of guitar player. He, he's a I like the noodling. Yeah, yeah. I like the shredders. I love that stuff. And so if it feels like I'm spending more time talking about Crosby, it's only because like I feel like the greatness of De Martini has been goes without well saying. Yeah. documented. Yeah, it goes without saying. Like, it, I mean, he every solo here you can tell, you know, when he's playing. But what I like about Crosby is he's he is a more sort of bluesy, he listed uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top as one of his main, um, and Jimi Hendrix as as two right. of his main sort of influences, and I think you could hear he is a he is a slower, more uh, feel and bluesy soloist than uh, Martini, right? And so you have that sort of, uh, and I so I like the idea of him finishing a solo. Because you can have Di Martini just kind of shredding along, but then when you need to blend the solo back into the song. Right. And as you hear here, where Crosby is just hitting those single notes as Stephen Piercy comes back in and is saying, I'm A. And he holds that note, right? And he's, and he's bringing it up and sort of screaming it out. That melding of the, just the individual notes as we go back into that chorus is great. And I think harder to do. I just like the way that those two yeah. complement each other in the song.
0: There are lots of times, and we've, we've had plenty of them, you know, that we talked about on the show. There are lots of times where the, the transition from the solo in the middle eight back into the song is handled poorly. Uh, but again, I think one of the things that struck me about this album was that sort of mat- slight maturity of songwriting. Uh, and, and arrangement, I should say, actually, more than songwriting, that comes, again, from experience of having played and sort of tweaked and rewrote lots of tracks lots of times, um, that you you kind of... You get better at that, you know? There, there is more care and attention paid to how they come out of Middle eights back into the song on most of these tracks than uh, than some bands exhibit. <laughs> it is... And just here, like...
1: Oh, go ahead. I was just
0: going to say, it is really a showcase for the guitar and vocals, this opening track. That's what I was... My impression of it listening through was that, like, yeah, this really showcases that Piercy is a great singer and that the guitarists know what they're doing. You know, the the drums and bass are very basic on this track. They're not bad, but they're not doing anything particularly exciting or interesting. It's very much about the guitars and vocals. I was going to ask you, though, do you think this is a good opening track? Because it is Kind of it's not very high energy, and you know for the sort of music they make, I almost would have expected something a bit more up tempo and a bit more in your face
1: that's a really good question well I think what I like about this album is that so uh to answer your question first of all, yes I do like this as an opening song and I feel like rat has that really good sort of mid tempo um there are approach most of their
0: stuff is very mid tempo on this album isn't it yeah
1: they? Like, they have songs, like, uh, I would say lack of communication, and we'll talk about that after, is a little more, like, up-tempo, and then you look at, like... Um,
0: or I'm mean, i uh, Insane. I'm Insane yeah.
1: is another one. Yes, that's that's more kind of speedy, right? But I almost feel like because that's not the bulk of their songs, if you did that up front, it might be a little bit misleading. And what I like about this is that there are... um The singles are... Not, like, the single... This is not the first... Uh, right they didn't just although they did a video for wanted man and i don't know if it came i think round around was the first single off of this one if i'm not mistaken but there are plenty Um, of bands
0: who would just put the single at track one like that used to happen a lot
1: (laughs) and but yeah i mean so do i think it's the most standout selling album no I think it does set a good tone uh, for the musicianship and also the, the vocals that you're going to get on this and just kind of the general approach of the band. Um, There are definitely songs that pop more off the album, but I, I like this one and I like it because of all the little things that they do here. Like just the idea of like, you know, one guy is just um, playing the chords and then you've got, and I'm assuming it's like Martini on the other side, who's just throwing a couple of chugs in there, right. As they're, as they're playing like the chorus, uh, chords and stuff like that, like that type of stuff is just candy for my ears. Like just the, the little pieces of flair that they kind of throw in there. And so it just makes it, um, a really fun listen.
0: So yeah, I do think it's an
1: opening tune. So now let's go into the second tune on the album, which is you're in trouble.
0: I mean, I'm always here for a bass and drums start. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know that. It's, I, I don't have a lot to say about this track. Like, it's solid. It's, a, it's you know, it rocks. Uh, nonsense lyrics, and we haven't really mentioned the lyrics yet, but the, there's, there's <laughs> almost nothing to say about the lyrics on this We're album. We're not going to say a but, lot
1: about the lyrics on yeah, this album.
0: They really are just like, you know, they're just there to make sounds. Um, yeah, it, it's a fine track. I just don't have a lot to say about it. It's kind of, you know, it's a toe tapper. Like I say, it's a solid rocker, but it's, it's nothing special.
1: What I like about this song. (laughs) uh, Well, I'll just blanketly say, I pretty much love every song in this album. (laughs) album, But, uh, but what I like about this song is different from the first song, right? Because you're getting this sort of bass and drum, um, you know, driven song. And I like that the, It's the chorus where the where the quote unquote rat riff comes in, right? Because I think again for this band, what I'm coming to this band for is the riffs. I want mem I want a hook. I want a riff out of sort of every song. And what I like here is that they flip it on you in this one, and it's the chorus where that kind of explodes, right? And so the first time I heard it, I didn't the the, like the kind of jungle sounds and stuff in the beginning are that's kind of nonsense stuff. Like I I don't know. If they were trying to set an atmosphere, it didn't work well um, for this. But when the song starts and you get sort of that rolling kind of almost like uh, rolling but then like snappy at the same time uh, baseline there, that wasn't super interesting to me the first time that I heard it. But the way that the guitars come in for the chorus, I was like, oh, okay. So I've come to really appreciate the song. And it's one of the stickier songs in my head from the album as I think back on the album, just because of that, just because of the, it kind of flipped the first song kind of on its head there. And again, you get those little... Uh, I like that there's that part about a minute and a half in where it starts to pick up a little bit, where he's saying, and that's the price you pay to lie. And it's like... Dun, 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 dun. Like it starts to quicken a little bit. Um And again, they do that thing here where like, they're playing the main riff like with no chugs the first time around. And then like the second time around, they add a couple of chugs in there. And it's just like, just that kind of stuff is, is, uh, is fun for me. But to me, it is the, it's the chorus and the approach of this song that makes it memorable. Not, uh, not the baseline in particular that's being played. Like I, I don't necessarily care for the, like the rhythm, the verse stuff as much
0: i mean i think that's probably true of most of the songs on this album though isn't it yeah and most songs in this genre you know it's all about because it is pop rock let's let's be you know or pop metal or whatever you want to you know however you want to phrase it and that's nothing to be ashamed of necessarily but it is you know this is music that is aimed at the pop charts uh just with that sort of you know with the the screaming singer and the distorted guitars and stuff. And so it's all about the chorus. That's what pop music is. Pop music is all about the chorus. Uh, This is why I must admit, I feel like a very old man sometimes when I realize so much modern pop music doesn't have a chorus. (laughs) I'm like, wait, what? Ah." Um, It just, it it confuses (laughs) me. But yeah, I mean, very few of the verse parts on any of these songs really stand out. There's nothing, again, nothing wrong with them. They're serviceable. But what they're servicing is the object of get to the chorus. Um, You know, I I could, and this is a testament, actually, a credit to the album. I could probably hum most of the choruses off this album, having now listened to this album, you know, quite a few times. Um, And I'd only listened to it two or three times before, like, say the chorus to Round and Round had got stuck in my head. You know, very catchy. Um, I don't think I could hum almost any chorus of the verses. Uh No, that's a good cuz that's not the point of the song.
1: And it also I think goes back to what I was saying earlier about like this is a band that every one of their singles has that. Right. And so when you see a rat video, when you heard rat come up in the radio, like this is why I feel like they their singles that they released are I think they have a uh I think it's called Rat and Roll. Um, which I'm sorry I didn't make that pun in the beginning of the episode, but here we are halfway through it. But I think it's called Rat and Roll, like their greatest hits album, like 81 to 91 is their kind of greatest. And it is just straight banger after banger after banger after banger. Like it is, this is what they do. Yeah. Like they always have choruses, a couple of, yeah. yeah, always. And, and really had those great hooks and, and super catchy type of stuff. And, um, and that's, you know, obviously one of the things that they're super remembered for.
0: Well, Let's take that as our cue then to move on to track three, which is the big single, their most successful song, I think, of their entire careers from what I read, which is track three, round and round.
1: This song is rat, right? And this was a song that Ben Eller was specifically talking about when he, um, is, he said, one of my favorite things about this riff is the way the two guitar players play it slightly differently. They're both playing the exact same chords, but the patterns of the strums and chugs for each guitar player is slightly different. And to me, that is what, and I feel like you can super hear it on this song. And so in addition to it being a phenomenal riff that is like just a classic riff and obviously an all-time riff for rat. It's that approach that I think makes it stand out. So, so like, this is a great example of a song. Like I have heard this song so many times over my lifetime. I mean, just, just probably thousands of times over my lifetime that I've heard this song and seen the video and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that it's not played out for me, that I can still go back and listen to it and still Enjoy these elements of it. I think it's because of those, those, um, that approach that they take to it. Cause it's not just, if it was just the riff, like you get desensitized to things after time. Like if you listen to the same songs over, like I listened to, you know, and here's your Megadeth mention, like I've listened <laughs> to Rust in Peace so many times that every note of every solo and every, every riff and every chord and everything is just embedded in my DNA now. And it doesn't hit the same way that it hits. And in some ways it doesn't hit the same way because Megadeth's approach is a lot more technical. Yeah. In in that way. Whereas it it is the raw swagger of rat. It is the it is that sort of just slightly out of sync, you know, approach, that loose feel to it that to me makes it worth continuing to come back to in in a lot of cases. And so I, I just you know the chorus is is super catchy it's great the solo is an absolute shredder here um you know i they they do some stuff here where they the first time as he's singing the verse you're getting one guitar playing the rhythm and then by the second line the second guitar is also playing that rhythm yeah. and so it's it's that sort of building the layers and playing off one another stuff that i really feel is just like it it's for a band on their first album but again we know they had a lot of experience by this time like they've really put their sound together on this song
0: well and there are other little unexpected bits in this song as well like there's that sort of half beat snare at the end of the verse lines which is you know just they didn't need to put that in there that's quite nice there's the the fact that they even vary the rhythm when he sings round and round, you know, which is hey, that's the title. You says the title, you wins the prize, you know? But even, yeah. <laughs> but even even that, he doesn't sing the same way both lines of the chorus. Uh again, you know, little thing, but it helps because it, it creates that variety that means you don't get as bored of it so quickly. You know, you haven't it's not literally the same thing every time. And it is, yeah, it's just a really catchy, good, solid rock song uh it also has a really good pre chorus, and a lot of their songs just don't have a pre chorus at all, which I find right. really odd for the time. you know that's very unusual for the era. I know that's more common these days, but it used to be pre choruses were absolutely if you were writing something you know for the radio, um you just expected to have one um yes, and I do wonder if that might be why this is their most successful song, actually, because it is structurally it is very traditional it is very very yeah verse pre-chorus chorus verse pre-chorus chorus solo repeat chorus like it is you know absolutely how you sort of factory make uh the arrangement of a pop song um and so yeah i wonder if that might have something to do with why it's the most successful song of theirs but also because it is yeah it is incredibly catchy like i say i think i'd listen to the album twice and already this the chorus of this song was going round and round in my head and i'm like oh, okay that is that's impressive <laughs> i've never heard, the, never mean, even heard the band before let alone this album and within two spins i've got the chorus of one of the songs stuck in my head okay that's yeah
1: the main solo and then the kind of outro solo are both freaking great too and another thing that they do on this one is again like the the first verse is almost played kind of standard and then by the time they get to the second verse it's a little bit looser yeah so it's almost like they establish the foundation and then they play with it a little bit as they kind of go in and again in a song that to your point kind of fits the formula of that sort of radio
0: hit. well Andy's not very long with that
1: no uh four minutes 22 seconds
0: right which actually makes it one of the longer songs on the album.
1: <laughs> uh, it does. <laughs> I think it makes it like the, the second
0: longest song or something.
1: You're in Trouble was three minutes, 16 seconds. Uh, the opener is three and a half. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to go right back to three and a half with the next song, too. So, yeah. So, what I like about these first three songs is like, to me, Wanted Man, uh, just a great sort of intro to all the elements that make rat rat, you're in trouble, leads with bass and drums, uh, flips the script a little bit, and then of course by number three, now you get the the single that that the whole kind of album revolves around in that way. So I feel like it's a good one two three of songs on this album.
0: All right. Well then I mean bearing in mind that you've already said you love every track on the album, but I am then interested to hear what you've got to say about track four, which is in your direction.
1: feel like it has a kind of a twisted sister opening to it there there are times on this oh, album yeah. where i feel like they are very um and not stay hungry twisted sister but like pre stay hungry twisted sister when they were when they were again that sort of up and coming bar band um sort of thing to it uh i just i feel like on this one i love the tempo and the groove of it where it's it feels different than it just feels different than than the other songs to me so far. So I feel like the first four songs have all given us a different feel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this one, um oh. this one, the riff when it comes in almost feels like, like, like reverse a little bit. I I don't know no, how, I, how to
0: explain. Th- that's exactly it. Yeah, that's. I like this song musically. I mean, lyrically, it is that abs- yeah. absolute codswallop. <laughs>
1: Just, i couldn't i couldn't tell you three songs from that yeah. i could tell you in your direction is in the lyrics yeah, right yeah to this I, song I actually, but like that da-da, da-da, da, yeah. i like that riff.
0: I, I read these lyrics and tried to make sense of them and i'm like they literally make no sense like they contradict one another and oh what a mess anyway but musically i think this is one of the more interesting tracks on the album um because yeah i know exactly what you mean about the reverse and it's because you've got that odd chord when he sings in your direction uh in the chorus like that is not the chord you expect to hear underneath his vocals at that point because it's setting up suspension uh rather than resolution which is what you expect at the end of a chorus line obviously so and there's a few things like that throughout the song the main riff is yeah you know has some nice unusual touches to it as well so yeah i think it is it's musically interesting, especially for somebody like me, just because it's like, oh, didn't expect to hear that. You know, that's not what you would do. I mean, it, like I was saying about if you were going to make a song designed to be played on the radio, this is not, you know, what the formula would tell you to do. And so that right. that always interests me. Um, I do also think that his vocal performance on it is great. Like I said, the lyrics <laughs> t- 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 make no sense at all, but the actual vocal performance I think is really good. <laughs>
1: But, and again, like the swagger of this, right? Like with the sort of opening of it, which did, did feel very twisted sits for me. Like that it, you think it's going to go in one direction and then it just like opens wide up where it's just, you know, that kind of just simple. BAM, b- b- BAM, BAM, riff being played in the background and then like little kind of accents and not even fills, but just little kind of, you know, uh, playing with that a little bit on the other side. And it's got, and then the sort of whammy bar uh, sort of accents in it as well. And it just like the canvas of that sort of wide open space for them to, for the verse And then when you kick in with that riff that, you know, that feels like it's almost there. There's almost like a reverse element to it. Feels really good. There's some great pick slides in there. There's some great fills in this song. Um, there's another part of the song where you have one guitar playing in the first verse and then you get sort of a pick slide and then the other guitar comes in and stuff like that. So even though there's a simplicity to it, there is a, they're, they're always doing that playing off of one another here. And I really like it. the bass has a great snap to it in this song too. I feel like, and then when they get to the solo, they go back to the opening phrase of the song when the pace kind of quickens. Um, oh yeah, for the solo there. Which at first, the first time I heard it, it felt a little bit off to me, and then I realized like, oh, that's the beginning of the song that they're that they're kind of bringing you know right back around here. So yeah, again like we haven't talked about the lyrics basically at all because they're not,
0: there's, <laughs> they're,
1: there's just nothing uh, amazing to be telling. There's no uh, incredible stories being told here that we need to, uh, to really dive into lyrically. But, um, but yeah, again, like I feel like songs one, two, three, and four are all giving you something different. And yet they all have that sort of loose swagger to them. And, um, It feels well-rounded to me, Mm. like, to this point in the album.
0: Well, then let's go on to the last track on side one, back when, you know, this would have been out on vinyl. Uh, Track five, She Wants Money.
1: feel like if there was one song on the album that i could do without or i i mean i like this song but to me it's a it's kind of a simple rock song um robin crosby does the solo in this and it's like minus it's like a fill it's not even like an actual you know solo i do (laughs) like i do like the way that uh kind of uh draws out when he's when he's saying she wants my I like how he plays with the cadence of how he is uh, delivering the, the kind of chorus there but the song to me is sort of very simple very straight ahead and it doesn't have the elements that the first four songs have had in terms of their like being something really that hooks me um whether it be the riff or the way that they're playing off of one another or something like that like it's a serviceable song for the last song on slide on, on side 1 but it doesn't hold up to the first four for me
0: no oh, that's interesting i quite like this song i mean not the lyrics it's it's kind of unfortunate that this is the first one where the lyrics feel coherent because like the you know, the actual contents of the lyrics is horribly offensive uh but you know welcome to heavy metal in the 80s Um, yep. But I like, I like the fact that this side one goes out with a bang. Like I like that. This is a high energy sort of, you know, sort of hard rocker kind of sound. I mean, yeah, the solo, as you say, can you even call it a solo? It's a bit like there's a middle eight in this, which is literally just two lines, two lines of a different melody and some different guitar. And then it's straight back to the chorus. Like this is, you know, this song is like I said before, all about the chorus. Um, but it does have that energy, and like I say, it sends side one out with a bang, so I do actually kind of like it. I just wish the lyrics were about something else.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I like that you like it, it because I think it, it uh, to your point, it does have an energy that it's more up-tempo than, than a lot of the stuff that we've heard so far, right? Yeah. And, and especially if you compare it to the first song um, that came in. And so, and, and in that way, I guess does show, again... How that first side of the album is pretty well rounded. Yeah, it does give you it gives you a lot of different looks within their overall framework, which I kind of like. Um, yeah, I'd,
0: I'd go along with that. Well, let's let's flip it over then. So flip that vinyl over, and like I say. But this, I mean, eighty four, everything was vinyl or cassette, wasn't it? So this was. This is another thing to always remember with these old albums: is that the track list is geared around there being two sides to uh yes. to a record or or a cassette, regardless of which it is, because that's there were there was no there was no such thing as a a way of playing music that didn't have two sides so uh it was always geared around that so you flip it over track six is the first track on side two and that is lack of communication
1: I mean, freaking awesome. Just, uh, just a classic rat song. To me, this is a song that begins with just an absolutely killer riff. I kind of like the false, like you can hear them fiddle around in the background before they kick it off, almost like they're doing that whole in the studio thing where, you know, you just happened along and they're, they happen to be recording a track there. There's an element of this riff that almost feels like it's, it like, Skips a beat like right on top of itself. Oh well, it, to me there's it does. like
0: a, That's why. <laughs>
1: oh good. Maybe, maybe I have more music theory than I thought I did, Anthony. But that that is like I love that. It's 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 enough to feel a little bit off and feel um just like it, it's it's almost like this uh you know this quickening moment there. I love the gang vocals on this. Uh, I just. There's there's another great element to this song too, where you have right before they go into the chorus, the bass and drums like go down together like into the chorus, like dun 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 dun. Mm-hmm. And and you get like individual bass notes and and the drums kind of follow, and it's like it just adds punch as they go into lack of communication. Um there's just a lot of little stuff that I that I really like about this song. This is also a song where um Crosby does the solos on it and the again almost like a fill in the middle of the song but the ending solo is actually really good and i think is is you know one of his better pieces on the album there so but yeah i like the way that the the bass and drums are sort of adding a punch together in this one instead of just kind of laying down the main uh you know rhythm and the riff itself to me just carries the whole song
0: it's, uh, I mean, this is another coherent lyric, actually, uh, which probably sounded more reasonable back in the eighties. These days, it just kind of sounds naive. But again, you know, welcome to rock music in the eighties. Um, yeah, the the so the the beat that steps on itself. What you're talking about there? It's it's in seven yes. eight. It's a seven eight time signature uh, in the main riff. It, it's really simple, but it's effective. It does work. Um, yep. Yeah, musically, I think this is another solid. One, uh, it's another one where I was like, opener of track of side two, really? like seems an odd choice but then I, I looked at the rest of side two and i'm like i'm not sure what i'd put there instead of it so i don't know
1: <laughs> i kind of like that you and i are of differing opinions on that because i i feel like this is a great opener for uh side two and and i mentioned kind of bass and drums there we haven't talked too much about juan Cruzier and bobby blotzer bobby blotzer oh well i was I waiting underrated.
0: until later in the to, but yeah go for okay, it no good. go for it
1: uh, well, I mean, just underrated drummer. I think there's, there's a lot of parts to the song where he is just kind of laying down the rhythm, but there's also a lot of great symbol work. There's, there's a lot of like quickening the pace. I'm every time I mention quickening, like he's a part of that. Um, I also like the parts like on this song where you have him, uh, him and Juan, uh, just like playing perfectly in sync as they sort of add punch to an element of the song. Another thing about uh, Juan Crucier, the bass player here, is that he was kind of known as uh the other voice of Rat. And there's an interview that I was listening to recently with producer Bo Hill, who produced this album, and he produced a bunch of their albums, but also worked with Winger and Warrant and Kicks and a whole bunch of other bands, um, where he talks about how Juan was a really good backup vocalist, and he, Bo Hill the producer, and Juan would often record background vocals together and sort of meld them Ah, into like another voice so that it was so it wasn't him and it wasn't juan it was their voices together as a background vocal and i i forget what specific album he was talking about but he, he basically was praising juan's uh backup singing uh just in general and then talking about how a lot of the background vocals you hear in rat are him and Juan together
0: yeah well Um, people uh i think some people who you know who aren't that sort of into how music is made don't realize that how background vocals you can get really they can go badly wrong you know you have to get the right voice because it can't be a voice that's too similar to the lead vocal. Right. That like just messes with people's heads and doesn't sound right because then it sounds like the lead vocalist is like almost double tracking themselves but not. I mean some some people will do that and there are, you can build a song around that, but if you just want straight supporting backing vocals, you want them to sound different to the lead vocalist. And so finding somebody who can who can sing but does not want to be a lead vocalist and doesn't sound like your lead vocalist is actually, you know, can be tricky. time to time and there are quite a few you know guitarists bassists drummers and what have you throughout rock music especially who are kind of unsung backing singers who actually do a really solid job but never get any kind of credit or appreciation for it outside of the studio and people who know because the whole point is that they're not meant to be at the forefront stealing the singer's limelight they're just supporting them
1: and a lot of times it's the bass player
0: it's like, quite common in a lot yeah. Of bands. yeah. <laughs> it is the bass
1: player. Yeah, like James Lomenzo is a great background singer. Uh Jeff Pilsen from Dokken is a great background singer. Uh yeah, a lot of times it is it is the bass player who really uh is a great background vo- so I thought that was great and on the next song that we talk about there is a uh, great background vocals. So mm. um this one uh but yeah, like uh those two, the rhythm section of this band maybe doesn't get enough credit for really creating the space for Crosby and Demartini to play off of one another and the space for Piercy's vocals to kind of go wherever they need to go.
0: Yeah, true. All right, well, let's talk a bit more about the rhythm section then by moving on to track seven, which is Back for More.
1: Oh man, maybe my favorite song on the album.
0: Oh wow, really?
1: Uh, yes, dude. First of all, I love the sort of intro where, you know, it starts off just just uh almost like acoustic right and then kicks in with the uh with the riff and then you get like that like slide into the riff. Uh is just awesome. I to me I feel like this is one of if not the heaviest song on the album.
0: I can, yeah I can see that. It does kind of it's got it's the closest they get to grinding I suppose at any point. Um I, this is the one track that I think maybe I would say might be better as the opener to side 2 just purely because of the way that it starts building up yeah. those parts in the intro. That feels like, you know, you could imagine an album opening or a side opening in that way. Um but th- the reason I mentioned like the rhythm section is the bass really holds this song together i think like the for me the rest of the song to be honest is a bit and and even even the musically it's kind of it's a bit so-so but this is the bassist's time to shine he is doing interesting stuff he is keeping everything moving uh he is the absolute backbone of this song like you know with a different bass player or just a different bass line this song would not hang together anywhere near as well as it does
1: And you can hear the snap of the bass. Oh, it's a great tone for the bass as well, yeah. Dude, it's so good. Just like you can really hear him just hammering on those strings for the bass. Um, The riff, I think, is super heavy. I really like the solo on the song. I also like this sort of climbing... Uh, like the you know, like that whole like as they're singing the chorus, like the the it it feels like it's and after the solo they do it where they're singing the chorus where he does kind of move up a little bit yeah. and it is climbing as he's kind of in between those uh repeats of the chorus and stuff like that. Like there's just to me um the the kind of funk that the main verse has with that baseline and then that just crusher of a riff which i think i think it's the heaviest riff on the album um i really like that plus i think the background vocals are great on this one so i as opposed to the almost like spoken word ones that you hear in some other songs like this one is more melodic and so i i think all that stuff works together really well Mm. and and to your point i love the way the song comes in and i actually now that you say it could see them flip-flopping uh, six and seven here i could see the second side of the album starting with this song yeah
0: like I say it's just the, the building up the parts like that is such a classic way to start a side of an album or you know the, yeah or the very start of any album um that yeah since as as i heard it i was like why was this not the opener on side two? uh but you know hey it's it's side two nobody cared about side two in the 80s that's the other thing that that people who didn't live through it maybe don't realize is that nobody cared about side two side two was where you put all the tracks that you just kind of they were good and some of them you know for the musos you know sometimes side two tracks can actually be the favorite ones on the album but they're not the singles they're not the ones that people are going to be tapping their feet to nobody cared (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh let's move on to track eight the morning after.
1: The morning after, I mean, I feel on the backside, I don't know, it, it fits. It feels okay. It's not like, I like the kind of galloping opening of the song. I feel like when the chorus kind of explodes, you get some, the, the drums kind of really driving that. I, I feel like, again, this is a song where the drum and drums and bass carry the song. Um, and then there's a shredder of a solo in it. So I, I feel like overall, it's a decent song. I wouldn't get rid of it off the album, but it doesn't it doesn't stand up for me to a lot of the other ones on the album well
0: if the if the previous track was the bassist's time to shine and show off this for me is absolutely the drummer's turn Like it's it's almost like this track is like guys guys can we do a song where I get to actually prove that I that I can play? (laughs) Can I go off a little bit? Can I can I actually prove to people that I am a drummer? (laughs) And it's like yeah okay fine go for it. And he really does he really does like there is so much drumming on this track. It's just but I I mean the bass is working hard again too. It's yeah, yeah I mean the track itself is nothing special but. There is just, I couldn't believe when I heard it, I was like, it sounds like a different drummer. It sounds like they got somebody else in to play on this track because none of the other tracks, the drumming sounds anything like this. It's, uh, it's really weird, but good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Whereas on other tracks, there was maybe a two second to three second moment where he could have a flash of...
0: Right, a little a you know, little kinda, fill or a paradiddle or something. Yeah, exactly. yeah but here it's like the in this entire song. It was song. Like, Dude,
1: just go crazy <laughs> on this one. Yeah, go crazy on this one. Like, it's all, it's all you, buddy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so what's, what's interesting about this song, too, is that it's, I mean, I don't know what the origins of all the previous songs here, but I do know that the ninth and 10th songs were sort of, uh, you know, updated versions of songs of that, again, songs, yeah. Crosby played with his other band, uh, Mac meta. And so this is kind of in some ways, like the last true rat song on the album. If we're kind of looking at it that way, because the two finishers are, you know, songs that, that he kind of brought into that band with him. I mean,
0: I could have uh, speaking of like track order and stuff. And now that you say that, especially I could actually see this being the last track on the album. Uh, You know, I think this probably might have suited even being the last track because it's, I mean, yeah, it doesn't sound like the other tracks necessarily because of the drums, but because of that, it's got that high energy and, you know, it's sort of, it would go out on a bang, which it kind of, the album kind of doesn't really. So, yeah, you know, I suppose maybe thinking of this as, in a way, one one end to the album is appropriate.
1: Well, so let's talk about track nine then, which is I'm Insane. Which is written solely by Robin Crosby. Uh, Three minute song. Again, this is, there's an earlier version of this that he did in a band called Mac Meta. And you can actually do a search for this. If you search for I'm Insane, Mac Meta, and you search for Scene of the Crime, Mac Meta, you can see the, uh, on YouTube, the early versions of um, both of these songs. Very easy to find. Uh, I feel like this is a good solid rock song and it's a nice kind of up tempo song here and i guess what i would give credit to is i don't feel like either of these last two songs are super divergent from the quote-unquote rat sound that we've established on the rest of the album which i think speaks back to how instrumental crosby is in that rat sound because they don't feel completely out of place to me on this album if
0: you hadn't told me that these you know what that these tracks were written originally for a different band. I would never have known that because yeah, they've whatever they've done to them in bringing them into this band, uh, I think makes them fit in as much as any of the, cause this album is, I mean, this you're right that so many of the tracks on here are just kind of, you know, pretty much similar mid tempo, but there is quite a variety Of stuff going on on this album and so it's hard to look at a track like this and go oh this doesn't belong this doesn't sound like that because totally just based purely on this album alone you go well what does sound like them actually like what is appropriate or inappropriate for this band so yeah i'd never have known i musically quite like this track It's you know high energy uh it is do you know and you'll laugh when i say this but do you know who this track musically only musically but you know who it reminded me of motorhead i can you know what dude that's not as crazy as you listen to the drums the drums especially like i'm like that sounds like filthy playing almost and yes because
1: it doesn't sound like a hair metal song it sounds more like a bar rock song exactly yeah like yeah in that way totally
0: as well you know the riff sounds like something that motorhead could have played i mean you know you can imagine they would have played it very differently (laughs) obviously but yeah as i was listening to it i was like i actually kind of get motorhead vibes off of this one uh which is probably why musically i quite like it
1: the one bummer of this song to me is that in the second half? Because this is a split solo between DiMartini and uh, Crosby. Is that when it gets to Crosby's part, it's almost like muted in the mix, like he's he's got some you know whammy hmm. bar stuff that he's doing, but it feels like it's recorded two rooms over from the rest of the song. Like I don't, I don't. It, to me, it's 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 almost. Um, you know, it threw me a little bit when I listened to that there. But the song overall, again, like I like that we're picking up the tempo as we get towards the back of the album, right? Not that you could get fatigued with 36, seven minutes, uh, total, you know, of <laughs> yes. this. It's not like you're, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and again, this is a three minute song. So it, it's t- this one is actually two minutes, 54 seconds. So we're sub three minutes here. And, um, it's just a nice kind of setup for the final song in the album, I think. Yeah,
0: Well, and that's sh- that brief, that brevity of the song is a- another thing that I think contributes to it. Yeah. Having a bit of a sort of motorhead feel and that may not be deliberate at all or may not be conscious. I should say at all, but yeah, just when I realized it, then the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, actually I really could picture motorhead playing this one. Um, you could
1: see them playing this one at the whiskey too, right? Oh, like yeah, you could see yeah, them yeah. playing this song at a small yeah. venue, uh, very up-tempo, running around the stage kind of thing. Like, this this feels like a good uh, bar rock song, well, it's, for sure. It's,
0: it's what you mentioned uh, earlier, the swagger. It, it's yeah. a song that's really got that kind of, in the music, as I say, more so than the vocals, but it's really got that swagger of, like, yeah, just the, the bluesy, bar rock, uh, you know, loud and, and dirty kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, let's finish then with the last track of the album, track 10, Scene of the Crime.
1: Next to lack of communication, probably the only other song lyrically that uh, is telling a coherent story. Right, this is obviously about getting caught cheating on your yeah. on your uh, lover. Here again, another Mac Meta song that um, Crosby brought in, but Crusier gets a co-writing credit on here as well. Um, here, there is this. There is. The second solo that Crosby, this is Crosby's solos on this song, and I think his best guitar work um, from a solo standpoint on the album. The second solo that he does is great, and I feel like is a long enough representation of his playing that you actually get a good feel for his influences. To me, you can definitely feel like the the Gibbons' uh, influence on his playing there. Um, this is another one where like, you've got, uh, it's kind of mixed in chugs as chords are being played that give it that little sense of looseness and, and sort of swagger. Um, they use chugs to kind of build up as they're, um, going through the chorus and stuff like that. So I, I like those types of, uh, those types of things. And even though they're telling a coherent story though, still awful, absolutely awful, (laughs) uh, lyrics. Like, let me read you. Oh, please. (laughs) I'm just going to read you one line, two lines. You've been out and I've been cheated. Well, I've been lied to again and again, again and again. And there's a, there's an even worse line here. Oh, here it is. Well, I know, well, you know, well, I know, well, I know, well, your games.
0: And I don't want to play. Yeah. No. It's, <laughs> oh yeah. my God, I mean, dude. It is And that's not even getting into the frankly aggressive misogyny of lines like, you know, cold bloody bitch going out on me. But again, welcome to rock in the eighties, unfortunately. It yeah, was, absolutely. You know, I mean, and God knows there are plenty of bands, including frankly some motorhead songs and stuff, you know, that are no better than this in those terms. So I can't get on any kind of moral high horse about that. But it is you look back and you think, My God <laughs> Really?
1: <laughs> um, I know. And honestly, like, just overall, it makes a lot of 80s music hard to revisit. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, And so I think in, in you know, when we're talking about some of these albums, especially from this era, like, the, the lyrical content isn't worth, you know, diving into. I think the, the coherent thing for me is that, like, there are songs in this album where you don't even know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. and And here you can you know like lack of communication it's like yeah people don't aren't people don't people talk enough to yeah. actually people don't talk enough they should talk enough this one it's like i got cheated on and i'm mad so like there's yeah. there's uh, you know a couple of songs here where it's pretty clear how they're you know what they're it's, talking about and uh it's
0: weird to me that this is the longest track on the album Yeah, almost five minutes. Yeah, you finish with the longest track, with a five-minute track, mid-tempo. I mean, it does have two solos, so I suppose you've got to fit them in somewhere. But, you know, mid-tempo, and then it just fades out at the end. It's such a weird final track for me. I mean, you're, again, talking about the mid-tempo nature of their songs. I suppose it's appropriate in that sense. But, yeah, like, again, musically not a bad song necessarily, but just a weird... Choice, I think, for final track. Also, by the way, is this the song that Slash ripped off for the "Sweet Child of Mine" intro? Because I'm sure I remember a controversy about that some years ago. I don't know. I'm sure I remember something going around years ago about somebody accusing him of ripping off uh, the intro. You know, the, the specifically that very distinctive tapping intro on uh, "Sweet Child of Mine." And as soon as I heard this track, I was like, "Wait, is it this?" Because this is really similar.
1: This one, to me, I immediately thought of Twisted Sister again as well. Was because and I, I think it's just the the time that this album is coming out and like the that era as they transitioned from bar band to continually more polished. And yeah. I think that you know, um, and this is the last song in the album, but I do feel like this is the rawest. I, I mean, the EP obviously is raw too, yeah. and, and the Metal Mask or stuff. But like studio album wise, I feel like this is the rawest that you're going to get. Rat and then it gets progressively more polished as time goes on to their detriment, I think, and so what I like is that this this one um and that's where I felt like with Twisted Sister too, whereas like they lost some of their punch over the years as they became more produced they
0: sanded off the whereas rough edges like yeah they
1: they did, and those rough edges man are are what makes them different yep. from every other banned and so like that that's why and again like obviously as the time went on like crosby's drug problems and stuff like that like in the infighting and all that stuff and so like it is um what i like about that there's so many things i like about this album number one is that i feel like this is a complete set list in an album i don't feel like there are any literal throwaway songs on this album and you can go out and do a 40-minute set with this With just album. these songs, yeah. Like, with
0: it, just it, this album. Because it does go up and down in terms of energy and, and stuff, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and maybe you mix it up and shuffle it up a little bit as to how you do it. The other thing, not a ballad on this album. Oh! And how many albums can you say that about from this in era the this type of music? Yeah, that, Absolutely. That is a
0: really good point. I hadn't even clocked that, but yeah. Wow, Yeah.
1: Not one ballad on this. Now they did not stick to that for <laughs> future albums because like, I don't even think it was probably illegal to put out an album without a ballad on <laughs> yeah. it, you know, after 1985, but the uh, yeah, come
0: after you, like, yeah.
1: <laughs> but they squeaked this one in without, uh, without having to put a ballad on it. So, uh, I mean, overall, I do feel like it's rat's most complete album. Um, they may have better songs on some of their future albums and, and in terms of singles, uh, some of the hits may be, have better riffs and stuff like that. But collectively, I feel like it's diminishing returns for a lot of their later albums. Whereas this one, to me, I can listen, start to finish and I'm not skipping any songs.
0: It it is. I mean, it's kind of sad sometimes, isn't it? it? When your debut album remains the, the commercial peak, I mean, you know, double platinums and golds and what have you afterwards, notwithstanding, but still when your first album will always and forever be your best-selling, most popular, and most commercially successful album—that's got to, you know, that's got to do something to the life of a band, hasn't it?
1: For sure. But I also feel like if you, I feel like Rat figured something out that maybe other bands didn't, and it's that they made sure that every album they put out during this period of time had one to two absolute radio killer hits. singles, yeah, and. And they could put a video behind it, and that would carry the album in terms of sales. Over time, it would carry it less and less, but you can go back to every single one of those albums and find a couple of songs that you remember hearing on the radio and you remember seeing on MTV, and they just did that. Whereas there were other bands that, once they got past their second album, couldn't put a hit together For any album, you know, whether the albums were good or not, couldn't put another hit together after that, where I feel like Rat was like, you're going to get a hit or two from Rat on every album. And that's why I feel like if you're looking at bands that can put a greatest hits collection together,
0: you could there's do few this, yeah.
1: that can put one together, like Rat can put together from that era of time. So do You know,
0: it's funny. I wanted to, I meant to mention this when you said it earlier. Uh, you were so, talking about how they were ubiquitous on MTV. Uh And thinking about that in relation to what I said about having never knowingly heard a Rat song before, I think it just goes to show how different our rock MTV channels were over here compared to the US. Because I did used to watch, uh, you know, the Headbangers Ball and Rock Hour and stuff like that on uh, MTV. But obviously they were different playlists. And I just don't remember ever coming across Rat in in that time i mean the other thing you've got to re- remember is that in the mid 80s i i was a metalhead, but i was also listening to stuff like genesis and marillion and jean-michel yeah. Jarre and what have you as well as you know sabbath and motorhead and stuff so I, I kind of i didn't i wasn't as intensively into metal as i was in the 90s let's say um but i didn't mind pop rock Like, uh, I looked it up, and Brian Adams' album, Reckless, came out the same year as this. Now, I loved that album. I've still got a copy of it. There's some great... And that is, you know, again, nothing wrong with it. It's a straight-up pop rock album, you know? And there's some great pop rock songs on it. But stuff like this just never caught my ear. I heard, as we talked about on the Motley Crue episode, you know, I heard them occasionally on the radio from time to time, but they just never... Sunk in with me for some reason. And so, yeah, as I say, I well, was- and
1: you, you know, you mentioned Brian Adams, and I think what over here, what my recollection of that period of time was, is that rock was the mainstream. And oh it was it, yeah absolutely. Pop yeah. pop was very rock influenced and so you had kind of your pop rock you, you had even your Cindy Loppers that were rock influenced Michael Jackson rock influenced and and had a lot of rock elements in in his songs and things like that. And so you could go the pop direction with it, you could go slightly more rocky with sort of the hair metal, you know, and then and then kind of on from there. And so what my experience was watching MTV when I was growing up is that all of this stuff was together. You would get a Brian Adams video and then an Aerosmith video and then ac ACDC video and then a rap video during the same mix of videos that was being shown. And so I just remember it being very much a grab bag of pop and rock and hair metal all together and not separated out so much. And when you had your headbangers ball, like on Saturday nights, you would get, you know, a steady diet of the heady, heavier, heavier stuff. That's when you might like actually hear a
0: Metallic or a Slayer or something totally.
1: yeah, yeah. Uh and, and Motorhead and stuff like that. Right. But like during the day, you would get, you know, your rats and your twisted sisters mixed in with your, with your, uh, Genesis and your Cindy Lopper and your Peter Gabriel and your Brian Adams and all kinds of stuff like that. And so uh, that was, I, I kind of had a broad, you know, taste of stuff too at the time, but because rock was so kind of so much of an underpinning of all of that stuff, it it could all fit together in a buffet and you wouldn't, blink an eye at it you know and so this kind of stuff i think was in heavy rotation but also right alongside uh you know eddie money you know well, and, so, and stuff like that so,
0: so i i'm going to agree with you uh i'm gonna like that's a that's a very good point uh and i'm but i'm going to say two things one i love cindy lauper but you are really stretching it trying to say that she was rock influenced like really really <laughs> like i i cannot get on board with that i cannot countenance your buffoonery. Um and the second one it makes me laugh, thinking of back in the day we had uh, a chart show on the mainstream network TV over here that just played music videos. there was no presenters or anything it was just music videos, and i 'll never forget once that they had a so called heavy metal chart, which was basically just rock music but i'll never uh-huh. i 'll never forget that Genesis were on there once. <laughs> I was like, and you know, I love Genesis. From like, really, in a heavy metal chart? Was
1: it Land of Confusion? No,
0: it wasn't even that. No, but it was. Uh, I think it might have been in too deep or something. But it was just because wow. because it was Genesis, okay. you know, because they're playing guitars, like, oh, they belong in the heavy metal, uh, you know, chart rather than the pop charts, rather than the, the dance charts or something. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it used to be a much broader church. <laughs> <laughs> than uh, well rock you know used to be a much broader church than yes than it is now i think for sure
1: absolutely 100 well, <laughs> i think i think that is the that is the underlying theme there is that rock was it really did cover such everything a wide if you category, had guitars yes. you
0: were considered a rock band it was that simple
1: and even like pop bands had incredible guitar players playing for them right and so uh true. You, you know yeah, it, true. it uh you know i think of guys like steve stevens and stuff like that like just uh really amazing stuff so yeah um anyway this has been i'm gonna find a cindy Lauper song that is that has a healthy rock uh <laughs> element do, to like it to and- say,
0: i love cindy Lauper. like i mean i genuinely i'm a genuine fan and i really would not put her in the well now all i can think about is go- girls just want to have fun and then the goonies <laughs> song so the, those are the only two in my head right now but I, i'll find one i mean she did have uh the guy from the hooters uh, co-wrote a lot of her debut album, uh, but again, it's like you know, I wouldn't really class them as a rock band either. Anyway, never mind Cindy Lauper. This has been a real journey, uh, <laughs> both musically and conversationally. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm glad that you uh, that you picked this one for our listeners' sake, because, like I say, I know that many of them have wanted to hear this for some time but also for my sake because like i say this was this was my first knowing exposure to rat uh so i, I yeah. consider it an education
1: and i hope that i did it justice for those fans of rat out there they because i i am definitely don't feel like that rat is an area of my expertise but i and i'm still learning about that like the, the robin crosby stuff i mean i knew that he had passed away from a drug overdose but really kind of digging into um just his time with the band and and how it ended and stuff. It it, it was super interesting and very tragic. And um, yeah, Mm. it's just, they're, they're a band that is absolutely a huge part of the history of glam metal, hair metal, sleaze metal, you know, that kind of stuff uh, back in the day. And uh, definitely deserves to to be talked about. So Absolutely. and um yeah, one that people I think have been waiting for. So
0: all right. Well before we get to the homework, I will just go through those URLs again. I'll say thank you to everyone for listening. Um you know, do still I know people don't really rate things on iTunes anymore, but you know, if you're the sort of person who does, go and give us a rating because it does, it still helps. Um, uh, but of course the best way to help is to go to patreon.com slash it out and pledge to support us directly become a patron get to take part in things like the listener polls which will be coming up again obviously this volume and even maybe get randomly selected to be a guest on one of our backstage pass episodes which we'll be doing a couple more of those throughout this volume uh if you want to get in touch go to thrash for links to email and twitter and that's where you'll find all previous episodes as well and of course remember you can join the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash and now it's time for homework give it to me so i we i was trying to think i'm not i'm deliberately not doing a theme this uh volume but i was trying to think of okay. what sort of albums i want to cover and i i would like to cover some more modern stuff again, because I think that 's interesting that you know especially with you and I, you know neither of us is getting any younger um, you know it's it 's good, I think for us to sort of look at the newer stuff as we did a few times in the last volume, just to see where the scene's at at the moment, but if you 'll recall I think when we did the fear fact no it was the machine head when we did the machine head uh album, I think it was, I said that it was to me it felt like the last outstanding band that was really obvious, you know, that that everybody would expect us to cover that we hadn't. And I got quite a bit of pushback <laughs> from listeners on that going because I clearly, I hadn't done their favorite band yet, you know. Um, and so I started thinking like, well, what are actually bands who are, you know, really successful, really popular, really influential that we haven't covered yet? And that, you know, we probably should. And it occurred to me that way way back in volume one do you remember we did within temptation i do symphonic metal band well uh-huh that's the only symphonic metal band we've done in the entire okay series uh, and i like where you're going well and if you're talking symphonic metal i mean i suppose you could count uh when we did the bonus track of um siberian trans-siberian orchestra you could sort of You know, there's an argument you could make, but they're not traditionally what you call symphonic metal. And if you are talking that genre, there's really only one band that everybody has heard of. Like, you know, no matter how, even if you're not into the genre. And so we're going to do Nightwish.
1: Ooh, I was going to guess Nightwish.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. That's what I mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly. If you said, give me one name, right, I would have said Nightwish.
0: Exactly. So we're going to do their most popular album, Once, from 2004. Uh, And that is going to be our next episode.
1: I love it. I'm excited to dive into it.
0: Have you ever listened to it before?
1: I think that I have because if it's their most popular album and they're the immediate band that comes to memory, I'm sure that I have, but I have no real, uh, you know, catalog with Nightwish. And so you've um,
0: almost certainly heard one or two singles from it. It was the last album with the, with their original vocalist. Uh, And so it, and like I say, was their most successful and remains their, mo- their best selling, I believe. So yeah, you'll almost certainly have seen one or two videos from it because there were a few singles. Um, and yeah, when you hear it, I'm sure you'll probably at some point go, oh yeah, I remember this one now. Um, Can't wait. So yeah, that'll be fun.
1: And well, this has been
0: fun, sir. It really has. It really has. And it's great to start getting back on the wagon again, as it were.
1: Absolutely. And thanks for everyone's patience. Um, you know, obviously there, there's always reasons of why, you know, uh, it takes the time that it takes between recording, but like just the, the fact that the community keeps thriving, everybody's so supportive of us. And, uh, it it really does make, in addition to the joy of recording it with you, it does make it even more joyous to know that, um, you know, people are supporting us and people get excited when the show comes out and stuff like that. It's awesome.
0: I could not agree more. So yeah, Nightwish once. We'll see you probably in about a month's time, everyone. Until then, keep thrashing.
1: Take care.